Hi, everyone. Um, our first reading is from Jonah chapter 4 on page 754. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And the second reading is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42, and that's on page 793. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Thank you. Um, this is such a great book, and in many ways, the book of Jonah, an ancient book of the Bible and God's word to us today, it is layered. And I finished my preparation and thought to myself, I'm actually only beginning to understand the book. Uh, I feel like I've got a long way to go. And so what I have here is the beginning of understanding, I think, of a book that I think could challenge me my whole life um, and really speak to, I think, some difficulties that we have in life, bitterness, anger, a sense of self-righteousness, those sorts of things. So um, that's my hope today. Let, let me pray. Our God, may that which concerns you captivate our attention, remove from us a reluctant spirit, give us your heart for Christ's sake. Amen. So my text today is a few words from Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But to Jonah, this compassion from God, this kindness to the Ninevites, this relenting of a disaster that he said would happen. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonathan Swift famously wrote in 1706, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. 
Great quote, isn't it? Implications? I wonder if, if we fully understood the love of God, if we knew him, and I mean really know him, not just be religious or believe in Christian values. If we really knew God, his love, his grace, his mercy, if we plumbed the depths of his compassion, then surely that would drive us to an unusual love for others, just like Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were still his enemies. Now, if only that were true, if only that were true, the trick to understand the book of Jonah is that Jonah knew the love of God. He really knew the love of God. But it bugged him. It infuriated him. The love of God got under his skin. You'll see why. He had enough religion to make him hate his enemies. He was not touched by God. And consequently, he was driven to hate and to bitterness and, importantly, to self-righteousness. Just like the religious leaders and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jonah is our minor prophet of the day. Um, we've done Habakkuk, we've done Joel, we've done Hosea. He hated the Ninevites, Jonah. And it was his half-grasp on the nature of God in the end that bugged him, got to him. Namely, that God is indeed righteous, that's true. The sin of the Ninevites had reached the eyes of God. And God is a just God, true. They deserve something from God. It's just not the whole truth. Add to this that God had chosen Israel. That was also true, and Jonah knew it and felt it. And that, of course, is not the whole truth. He had just enough religion to make him hate, but not enough of God. He wasn't responsive enough to God to make him love his enemies. We're in a series in the not-so-minor prophets, these ancient books where there is no sugarcoating of the human soul. I'm not here to tell you, aren't you a nice person? Nor is there mere mumbling of God's grace. In this series, we want to hear God's heartbeat and listen and learn and get to know him. And in the end, we want to trust Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of these prophets. Now, Jonah's uniqueness among the prophets, and I've outlined the uniqueness of each of them so far, his uniqueness is that he's the bad guy in the narrative. Uh, in most of the prophets, the prophets speak for God to the bad guys, to the sinners. This time, he's the sinner, the prophet. The prophet is the sinner, Ninevites, the righteous ones. Jonah then becomes an anti-hero. Two points, if you're following in the middle of your news sheet that you handed when you came in, I want to say two things today. One, resisting the grace of God. I think you've touched on the other screen, Minto. You need to keep it. Thank you. Beautiful. Resisting the grace of God. I want to tell the story of Jonah. And then secondly, submitting to the grace of God. I want to talk about its meaning for our lives. Firstly, resisting the grace of God. Let me tell you the story of Jonah briefly. To hear the heartbeat of Jonah, you must spend the time in chapter 4, as opposed to 1 to 3, primarily. Why? Well, the first reason is I'm personally done with the fish taking over the story. Fish follows Jonah in chapter 1, verse 17, but the fish is only mentioned in three sentences in the whole story, and whenever anybody thinks of Jonah, they think of him being swallowed by a fish. The fish is important because Jesus mentions the time that Jonah spent inside the fish, but we'll get to that in a moment. But the primary reason to spend time in chapter 4 is that the punchline of the story is at the end. 
And I hate missing the punchline. If we spend all the time in the sort of the bad guys repenting, the Ninevites repenting, then you miss the punchline that this message is not for the bad guys, it's for the religious types, not the pagans, but for the good people, like Jonah. The moral of the story is at the end, and so we must go and sit with Jonah on the hilltop in chapter 4. You may or may not know the story. It is satirical in nature. It's intended to poke fun at religious people, particularly in the 8th century BC and the Israelites. The book is self-deprecating, for it is the Israelites who recorded and kept this story, including it in their canon. They kept the story there, even though it's clearly aimed at them. It is at the very least a parable. It functions as a parable, a story intended to expose the hearts of the ancient Israelites and I believe modern Australians too. Its parallel in the Gospels is the parable of the prodigal son and the parallel to Jonah in the story is the older brother, curmudgeon, small-hearted and angry. Jonah is a prophet of Israel, the fifth of the minor prophets. Chapter 1, verse 1, he's named, and in verse 2, he's called to go to his great enemy, the, city of, the great city of Nineveh, and 1, verse 2, to preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me, says God, I saw it. So you've got to go and speak against it. We find out in chapter 3, verse 4, what the message is, 40 more days and the city will be overturned, and that's his only message. All the kids' books say, have Jonah come to the Ninevites saying, God loves you, he really, really loves you, and he wants you to turn back because he's got his best for you. None of that in Jonah. In Jonah, it's 40 more days, and this city will be sacked. You've got to remember that Jonah hates the Ninevites. They are his great bloodthirsty enemy. And so you think that Jonah would relish the chance to deliver this message it will be like a hardline Israeli conservative rabbi going to the leader of Hamas with a message from God, you're about to be wiped out. Some of them might say, I'd like to say that. Jonah, same sort of person. Nineveh exists today in the form of ruins. Uh, it is across the river from the modern day city of Mosul in Iraq. But Jonah says, not gonna do that. He decides to go the other way, the opposite way. In the text, in chapter 1, he goes down to Joppa. In 1 verse 3, he pays fare to Tarshish. He heads down into the bottom of the boat. Tarshish is probably in Spain. He heads to Europe. Everybody heads to Europe when they're trying to escape something. And Jonah does too. Um, I love this. That's where he's supposed to go, the red line. And uh, where he wants to go is the dotted line all the way to Spain. I love how this map that I lifted from Google... Uh, tells you the direction it actually went, uh, you know, when he was thrown off the boat. Um, and uh, it even has the journey of the, the fish. Um, I'd like to know that pre-GPS. But, you know. Now, you may know the story. We find ourselves in chapter one with Jonah on a boat. And we discover that God pursues you even if you think you can get away. You can't. In chapter one, the pagans are more responsive to God than Jonah is. And Jonah gets thrown overboard at his own suggestion. The storm calms, but God is with him as he sinks to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, and God provides a fish. And so we find ourselves in chapter 2, 
with Jonah in the belly of a fish where he responds to God, sort of. It's a prayer. God engulfs him, rescues him. And then in chapter 3, God spits Jonah up and out towards Nineveh. The text says the fish vomited him out. And so he heads east to Nineveh, where we find ourselves in the bustling city of Nineveh. And there Jonah gets to say to his great enemy, his dream message, 3 verse 4, 40 more days and this city will be sacked. God's got it in mind. And lo and behold, they hear a word from God and the Ninevites call on God. Even the king, 3 verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that, he will, so that we will not perish. No entitlement. No, of course God loves me because I'm a good person. Who knows, God may yet not send me to hell, basically. And he may, in fact, with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, which is correctly leveled towards us, so that we will not perish. It's like the king is familiar with Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. And chapter 3, verse 10, lo and behold, they hear a word from God. They show a whiff of repentance, a whiff of repentance, and God has compassion on them, and so he relents from sending the calamity The city does not get overturned after 40 days. Now, chapter 3 is where the kids' storybooks end. The bad guys repent, make sort of sense. There are bad people out there. I'm not one of them. When the bad people repent, it's like, okay, that's good. That's a redemption story, and I'm not a part of that because bad people not meant to repent, not good people. And so we sort of clap as though the parable of prodigal son should end the moment the younger brother comes home. But... Like the parable of the prodigal son, we have one more place to go. Because the big question in Jonah is why did he head in the opposite direction in the first place? Why did he go to Europe or try to go to Europe? When I was a kid, I thought that Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites. They, after all, were the bullies. They were big. They were fierce. They were bloodthirsty. Our history books tell us that. They were the superpower of the day and Israel was one of their sworn enemies. And so who wants to land yourself in the middle of, of, a, of a dangerous crowd? But this is not the point of Jonah at all. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. He was afraid of the love of God. He was afraid of the love of God. After watching Nineveh repent, after watching the compassion of God, and God relent or repent of sending the calamity that he'd hoped would come upon them, we find ourselves with Jonah... I'll get this right, with Jonah on the hilltop in chapter 4, overlooking the city. We're told in chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, this compassion of God, this relenting from sending the calamity. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. You know, I thought they were going to be destroyed. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, saying to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? I said this to you then, which is interesting because it's not recorded in chapter 1. Jonah gives us a glimpse into what was going on in his mind, but not recorded in the prophecy. He said to God all the way back in his homeland, I knew this would happen. This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in love. I knew that you were a God who relents 
from sending calamity. And there's the punchline. The joke is <laughs> that he knew the love of God, but his heart was hard. So Jonah says, effectively, I suspected all along that this would end badly. I knew it would. I suspected it would end in tears. Mine. And what I feared has come true. The love of God is an amazing thing. It comforts people. It shapes people. It renews lives. But if you think of the love of God as an amorphous goodwill towards all humans, like a benign happiness, then you don't know the love of God. Not the one outlined in Scripture. If you tend to think, uh, aren't we all children of God? And he has a disposition of like towards us all. The true love of God, expressed in the Bible, challenges people. It bugs people. It infuriates them so much that some people become Christians for the first time. If we truly understood the love of God, plumbed its steps, it would confound us. Now, we were never called to go to Nineveh, but we are called to love our enemies, said Jesus, and to pray for those who persecute you. We are called, in our strategic plan for church, to fill the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think what's interesting about Jonah is that he exists on a frontier. And while ever you're safe in homeland, you tend not to have the circumstances by which your heart gets exposed. Jonah believed in the love of God, safe in Israel. But when he had to move that love of God into an uncomfortable zone to a group of people that just bug him, well, that exposed his heart. It often comes in culture clashes. And what is happening now, I think, in the last 10 to 20 years, something of this is happening now in our culture. And that was the subject of Craig Tubman's talk last week. It's worth getting and downloading. And Craig's coming to us next week. He, after last week, he said, can I do the last two talks? And we scrambled to make it happen. So Craig's speaking next week and then in three weeks' time to finish his series on how to live in this complex frontier, really, with culture clashes. Job believed in the love of God safe in Israel, but not when he saw his enemies repent or be transformed or learn. So he resisted the grace of God. That's the first point. And the second point is what it means to submit to the grace of God. I want to talk about the meaning of the story for our lives. Jonah is about misunderstanding the love of God, or, or rather understanding the love of God, but resenting it. Resisting it. And so jo Jonah refused to submit to God, to yield to him. And I'm thoroughly convinced that the verb to yield is the verb of being Christian. That's what it is. Submitting to the outrageous grace of God, I believe, will lead to three beautiful things in your life. And these are all about your engagement with the world and indeed perhaps even with your enemies. And each of them has a possibility of enlarging your heart. I believe that submitting to the outrageous grace of God will lead to first an open heart. An open heart rather than a bitter heart. I got this quote this morning, I got it on my phone, I'll look it up. It's magnificent, it's from uh, Frederick Bigner, the late Frederick Bigner, who's a cheeky Presbyterian, 
and I say that like that, like there's such a thing as a cheeky Presbyterian, but apparently there is. Here it is, Frederick Beekman. He says this. Now, listen closely. Listen closely. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savour the last toothsome morsel both of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Ouch. <laughs> you think your anger is achieving something? Coretta Scott King said this, hate is too great a burden to bear. It injures the hater more than it injures the hated. It's time to do something about it. So how do you get over the hate? And I believe the answer in the scriptures is submit or yield to the outrageous love of God. You can see the bitterness in chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah, this compassion seemed very wrong, and he became angry. The word is very angry in the Hebrew. And that kind of anger led to a bitterness in Jonah in chapter 4, verse 3. But now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He says that on the back of the compassion of God towards Nineveh. And then, of course, this plant grows. God sends it, and uh, he says the same thing in verse 8. Uh, I'm so angry that the plant is gone that I wish that I were dead. Now, people have death thoughts for all sorts of reasons, but the outrageous love of God being poured out is not usually one of them. But that may be because, you know, we haven't lived on a frontier. I don't know if you know the story of Simon Wiesenthal, a Polish Jew in the Second World War, forced into, and post-war, forced into a labor camp. 89 of his relatives were dead at the hands of the Nazis. One day in a labor camp, he was approached by a German nurse and asked, are you Jewish? And he said, yes, I am. And so she led him to a dark and musty room where a lone German soldier lay bloodied on the table. And the soldier said to, to uh, Wiesenthal, my name is Karl, and I must tell you of my horrible deeds I must tell you, because you are a Jew, and then he tells deeds that I don't want to repeat here. He concluded, because he was on the front line, he's, was, um, his injuries were from war, he concluded, I am left, to, speaking to Wiesenthal, I am left here alone with my guilt. I know that what I have told you is horrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Now, just as an aside, I don't know whether one singular Jew can speak or declare forgiveness to this man for all Jews. I think a person, a sins can only be forgiven where the sin has been committed. He could offer forgiveness for something done to him. But the story is still powerful for the effect of anger in a life. Carl goes on. 
He says, time and time again, I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him, only I didn't know whether there are any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. So Wiesenthal was there saying, do I, for, do I offer a word of forgiveness or not? Whether we could or not, do I offer it? Three times Wiesenthal tried to pull away, wanted to leave, and each time the soldier reaches out and keeps him there. What does he do? What does he say? He looked down at the man, trying to decide what to do. Wiesenthal writes, at last I made up my mind, and without a word, without a word, I left the room. He wrote a book about that very experience later called The Sunflower, The Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness, in which he tells the story and then asks 15 famous people to write a little essay, what would you have done in my place? What would you have done if you were me? Now, most responded saying that he'd done the right thing. By the way, if you don't have a chance to read the book, it's not a big one, Wikipedia will give you all 53 entries, and there's some. Most responded saying that he'd done the right thing, not for the reason I gave, which is, but because he didn't deserve it. Forgiveness does not belong with this man. Frederick Nietzsche viewed forgiveness along with pity and compassion as the sniveling vice of the weak and resentful who pass themselves off as lofty and magnanimous. Now, Wiesenthal did some incredible, incredibly good things, right? Pursuit of justice. He spent his life looking for Nazi war criminals and bringing them to justice, but in many ways driven by bitterness. Philip Yancey wrote in the book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He said, I once heard of an immigrant rabbi making an astonishing statement before coming to America, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler in my heart. I didn't want, didn't want to bring Adolf Hitler inside me to the new country. God is full of compassion and slow to get angry, which is good news for you and me. The whole world, I believe, is like that German soldier on that table, battered and bloodied and bruised by her own sin. And this is a world that you and I partake in and sin in. We sin in that world. And another Jew, Jesus, stands at the table of the world. God sent Jesus to a sinful world. And Jesus doesn't walk out the door without a word. He offers a word of forgiveness. He demonstrates the grace of God for sinners like you and me. So Paul can write, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. I believe that uh, the outrageous love of God, yielding to it rather than resistant to it, will lead to an open heart. And secondly, it will allow you to draw close to sin and to sinners and to the world rather than withdraw from the world. Because in 4 verse 5, Jonah begins a ghetto mindset. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a little shelter, a little booth. Um, cheap seats for the show. And he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen. Maybe Jonah was hoping that God would relent of his relenting. He's hoping for fireworks. He's hoping to see the city destroyed. That's his great hope. Jonah did what many Jewish people did and what Christians often do now, namely to separate ourselves from the outside world, 
to create a ghetto with a ghetto mindset, to separate ourselves from the great city, to go outside of it and to see what would happen. I mean, I do think the great suburban effort of going out to find your spot that's a sanctuary for you with a little fence around it. Here's a beautiful thing, by the way. I've got no problem. I love the whole idea of a sanctuary for yourself. But as a metaphor for separation, as uh, the idea of withdrawing, perhaps this is problematic. The book of Jonah is in part about presence, about incarnation, about... um, God turning, it's about God turning up through the life of Jonah in a hard place. It's about being in and where the sin is. He's called to go into the city, and yet in chapter 4, he withdraws himself from it. And I think our lives can be similar, where we create our own space in which we feel comfortable, sanctuaries for selves rather than others, nice homes, picket fences. This is good, but not as a metaphor for separation. We've got to find ways to love people we don't naturally love, to have a presence in the city, to get dirty, not away from the city, to be outside and on mission, and to not find ourselves the reluctant prophet, as Jonah himself is, not creating Christian ghettos behind sandstone walls, but being present, outward, and loving. I believe that the outrageous love of God, submitting to it, will give you an open heart and will allow you to draw close to others and lastly, to value the right things, people over things. In 4 verses 6 through 11, God provides a vine for Jonah. There are vines like this, I'm told, that grow overnight and very large and provide shade. God provides the vine to make a point to Jonah. Jonah, like you or me, delights in the comfort that is given to him in verse 6. But in verse 7, God, making a point, sends a worm that chews the vine and ate it up so it shrivels up. Then God provides a scorching wind in verse 8 with the sun beating down on Jonah's head without a hat and sunscreen. And sweltering there, he's angry, more angry than he was before. What's the point? Verse 10, the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It was a gift. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. You valued the plant. But what about the city? Verse 11, should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their spiritual or moral right hand from their left? They're flapping about in the breeze. And also many animals. I think the worm's the key to the story. The book, you know, it's Jonah and the fish. The book could equally be called Jonah and the worm. That would make more sense. Because the moral of the story is that God loves beyond borders, our neat borders, and that Israel was blessed by God to be a blessing even to her enemies. That was the call of God, and yet Jonah resisted the call of God. Israel was called to share the love of God with her enemies, to value people over things. But Jonah was concerned about a vine. We love vines, we love comfort, we love beauty, but God values human beings more than he values your comfort. Sydney is a city that does not know its right hand, spiritual right hand from its left, its moral right from its left. It flaps around in the breeze. You can see it on social media. And we are called to be on mission with the message of God, with the life of Jesus Christ and the outrageous love of God, speaking to the city, present, not outside the city, present in the city, calling her to repentance. 
Jesus is the new and better Jonah, and it is him that we proclaim. Jesus was sent by God to get people like you and me to think outside of ourselves. Jesus, in the Gospels, rebuked his own countrymen when they asked him to dance, when they asked him for a sign. It's like saying to God, dance, God, dance. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 39, he says, a wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The only sign I'll give to this generation, says Jesus, is Jonah's sign. And what is Jonah's sign? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He'll die Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning. Jesus went down into the earth, but God was with him. And God raised him from the dead. And he did all of that so that both religious people and irreligious people could find grace. So that the so-called good people and the bad people can find grace. So that grace might transform younger brothers like the Ninevites who end up in the pigsty of their own choices. And also that grace might be shown to older brothers like Jonah or perhaps like you and me who end up unable to celebrate grace because we think we're good. No, we need to respond to Jesus like the Ninevites responded to God. Jesus' very point, the men of Nineveh, he said, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The bad people will condemn this generation for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. What would enough to make us love one another look like? What would it look like? Someone greater than Jonah. It would look like Jesus and us following him. It would look like us repenting of our sins and then facing the city with the grace of God on mission. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, the gospel is such good news for sinners like me, like us, like the Ninevites. And yet our default position will be to defend ourselves and so we pray that you'd spare us the little-heartedness of Jonah and uh, the ghetto mindset and the misvaluing of, of, uh, of things over people. I pray that you'd spare us this and show us instead, instead what your love looks like. I guess we should pray what the Apostle Paul prayed, that we would have power in our inner beings so that we might grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge in a way that transforms our lives. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.